HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Visit a farm. Log on to EscapeMaker.com for more ideas on local weekend getaways and day trips to orchards, farms, wineries, breweries, and more. Get out of the city and explore while also supporting your local farmers. Log on to EscapeMaker.com now to get inspired and make your escape through the net. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And you, of course, have tuned into the Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. And today we are going to be zooming out a little bit, um, talking about some big stuff here in the U.S. Um, We are just days away from a very big presidential election And um, many people in food and farming have been curious about how the candidates, um, whoever wins on November on November 8th, will impact um, food, farming and all the things that are tangential to that. And to help us think a little bit more about this and what it entails, we've asked a longtime friend of the network, uh, former co-host of the Farm Report, uh, John Wilkes, to join us. John, how are you? I'm very well, Erin. How are you? I am great. I am great. So, John, you have been working in agriculture on uh, a national and international um, stage for a number of years, and um, you know, recently did a discussion on the same topic for um, another well-known radio station, the uh, BBC, the British Broadcasting. And um, we're really excited and flattered to have you here to help us understand a little bit about what we should be thinking about. So I thought I'd kick it off by having you lay a little bit of the the groundwork for us. Um, what should we be thinking about? What are the kind of big questions, concerns, and things um, that you're seeing from where you sit? Well, um, as you say, yeah, there was a, this big forum last week. Excuse me, a big forum last week here in D.C. where each party put a, a candidate forward and they were able to, you know, state the case for both sides. And uh, fr- from the Clinton uh, from the Clinton camp, 
Um, it, it, it was it, interesting. Um, uh, Kathleen Merrigan, who's a former uh, Under Secretary of Agriculture and Director of Sustainability at George, George Washington, she spoke on behalf of the Clinton side of things. And, and basically, she had a, a, a top, top 10 priority list. So from the Clinton perspective, there was a list of 10 uh, rural priorities for uh, Hillary Clinton were she to be elected. And uh, I'll run through those in a minute. And then on the other side, they had Sam Clovis, who's a professor of economics at Morningside, and, and he's the co-chair and policy advisor for the, com- uh, for the Trump campaign. Um, but it, so going back to the Clinton side, um, she had a list, and she did a David Letterman in reverse order. In <laughs> order. But, but I suspect there was maybe, you'll see, when, when we get to the top end of the list. So starting out, uh, clean energy. Was it was a big issue for the Clinton campaign? Um, she hopes to have, I think, is it 500 million solar panels by before the end of her first term in place, so that the rural states would lead on that, and also with the bio base and biodiesel uh, for sustainable and renewable energy, immigration reform. Um, you know, they, they feel that um, then you know there needs to be immigrants coming to this country to work uh, because without you know full immigration, um, a lot of the crops won't get picked and it won't be good for U.S. ag, and there'll be more imports. And in fact, she plans to, um, to uh, put into place uh, a pathway to full citizenship to be introduced in her first 100 days, which is interesting. And uh, beginning farmers and ranchers, looking for help for them, farm support. Rural broadband, that was an interesting one. That's oh, where yeah. both sides agreed. And uh, also, in num- well, technically number nine position was rural substance abuse which was interesting. Uh, between 1999 and 2009, uh, the real death rate grew by 400%. So, so that, that's wow. a biggie. Yeah. I mean, you, you just don't think of that. And this was across all sort of sections of society in the rural area and age groups, demographics. That was fascinating. But the number one, and she stressed this, her number one was the woman's card. Um, because... Um, you know, w- women are uh, the head or co-heads of many farms in the U.S., a third of all operations. And, and she said by, the t- by 2030, women may own as much as 75% of, of all transferred land here because they outlive their husbands. So, um, so that, that was interesting. And uh, so quickly on, on the other side, uh, obviously, for the corporate tax, tax for the, the Trump side was very important that they want to cut uh, corporate tax to 15%. And also that the, uh, the death tax too, the implications for farmers trying to pass on, you know, the farm to their to their siblings, you know, sure. to, sorry, to their kids. That was a biggie. And also, but but the big one really is is this idea of government overreach on the western over, you know, on the western rangelands for livestock producers and the energy companies. Um, I have 13 western states. I think the federal government owns 20% of the land, and in Nevada it's 80%. So. We've seen some of this, you know, the the, the sort of um, the way that that's been resisted, and uh, land management issues. You know, there should he felt that that Trump feels there should be a balance between preserving habitat and not over in favour of EPA. Um, and then, obviously, immigration is huge for Mr. Trump, and uh, you know, one in four agricultural workers in the U.S. are actually illegal. So um, then they want to reform immigration and the workers are coming in, doing the job and doing it all legally. Um, so, I mean, th- those are just as a quick snapshot of, of some of the stuff. 
Yeah, well, so it's interesting because obviously a lot of a lot of those kind of uh, you know the top ten or, or the top list, if you will, are um, really, frankly, in line with a lot of stuff you've been hearing from both of the campaigns throughout this election cycle. Yeah. Um, with kind of a pivot to look specifically at uh, agriculture and food production. Um, so, kind of. Setting politics aside for just a second, I mean, what were kind of your reactions? Um, what were things that jumped out at you as you were like, yes, that's like smart. I get that. Or or no, I like that's just like taking us down the wrong path um, from just kind of your experience. Well, did you have from, strong from reactions in either direction? Yeah. From my perspective, the big one, as we all know at the moment, is trade, is, is TPP. I mean, that is the biggie. Um, Obviously, there's issues around other stuff, but TPP, particularly, I mean, I look a lot into the livestock industry in the U.S. here, and I'm, you know, so for the livestock industry, um, if President Obama isn't able to get TPP. John, let's just take a pause there quickly, and if you can kind of break down for folks in broad strokes. I will tell you exactly. TPP is the Trans-Pacific Partnership. This is a 12-nation trade deal that includes the U.S., it includes Australia also, Brunei, Canada, Chile, Japan, Malaysia, Mexico, New Zealand, Peru, Singapore, and Vietnam. That's half a billion mostly affluent customers, of of which that's 40% of the whole world's GDP. So this is a trade deal that's been crafted between the U.S. and those 12 nations. We do already trade with four or five of them anyway. We've got bilateral agreements. But the, the U.S. livestock industry, I feel, and uh, they're really fighting to save this. I mean, it's worth potentially an extra $4.4 billion annually extra in extra income for U.S. farmers if it were to go through. And I know that the beef and the pork sectors are, are, are both uh, calling it a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I make no comment. I'm just, you know, it's my sort of my thoughts on speaking to the, the farming people here in D.C. On sure. The, the bodies. So wait, I that mean, extra income is because they are getting new customers or because they're getting a higher price on things that they're currently selling? Like, where does that extra income come from? The, the income will come from things like trade tariffs in, in, in reduced trade tariffs. Got it. Uh, okay. And, and, and that they, it'll be a level playing field with, um, for example, in, in, in the beef and to a lesser extent, sheep industry, but the beef's the big one. Australia are very much in the forefront and in the driving seat on this. And, um, you know, it's worth a lot of money. Um, I was talking with Colin Woodall. I, I did send you a... I don't know whether it worked, but I, 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 I spoke with Colin Woodall afterwards, who's VP for Government Affairs at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And he pointed out their industry is losing $400,000 a day as a result of not being in... Uh, having the TPP agreement um, sort of uh, on the statute book and being able to use it. It's big chunks of change. And um, the, it, it, it's big money, Erin. If you look at just at Japan alone, Japan is the biggest market for U.S. pork, beef, corn, and wheat. Okay, it's the biggest market. It takes, I think, about nearly $1.28 billion of beef a year and $2 billion worth of pork. So wow. it's a big one. Yeah. It's huge. Um, but it's, so just, just zeroing in on the beef side... Australia have an agreement, a bilateral agreement with Japan, where they see a tariff on Australian beef going into Japan of 27.5%. This is going to drop, um, there are, it's going to drop down to 19%, you know, in increments. Mm-hmm. 
The U.S. tariff is 38.5%. So that's a huge difference between the, you know, between what the Australians are enjoying and what the U.S. beef industry is currently enjoying. So you can understand, in a way, why it's important. So, so I, I think T- TPP was was the big thing that jumped out, and and, and regulation too. I, I think. Um, you know, the issues with, with regulation were, um, it was big. Trump wants to deregulate. He, he wants to sort of regionalize policy. Um, whereas um, for, for Hillary Clinton, they, you know, very much feel that regulations are important and uh, that, you know, it, it needs to be in place because um, otherwise it's not going to... Um, I don't know. It, 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 it's hard to hard to really um, get it over that the fact that you know regulations from Clinton's point of view level the playing field and they give certainty to business and build trust and and also they get the confidence of the American public and uh, you know if they can get a standard in place. Kathleen Merrigan highlighted the organic standard a few years ago. Mm-hmm. There was varying standards of organic and then the, but the federal they stepped in to create a a policy for organic, which everybody could work to. So it's, so, you know, I feel like it's kind of my, my general impression is that uh, historically, I mean, I think specifically looking maybe from like the mid uh, 1950s to now that the, the federal government has always had a, a big hand in our egg and, and food policy, um, really shaping kind of what's growing here, the pricing systems, how it's exchanged. Um, and, and so there's like the, the kind of like regulatory and, and shaping environment, um, looking at the involvement of government has always been, you know, pretty significant. And I think that's reflective of the fact that food, you know, and food access and food security is, you know, really a basic human need. It would, do you think like, do you have a sense of like compared to other kind of industries when we're just thinking about kind of level of um, involvement of government that like food and egg have, you know, more attention potentially or, or not really? Well, I, I, I think yes, because I think obviously it's, it's a, for food production, a lot of it is, is the public health side of things. It's the health of the people who's involved with agricultural production. And that's why in any country back in the UK, it's the same. You know, the, the, the government agricultural side of things are very much involved with, with food production because of safeguards being put into place for, um, for, for, for the public. Um, but, but, I mean, it's interesting. There's, you know, um, the, the Trump side want to cut um, regulatory regimes. They want to make, you know, to make smaller enterprises more competitive. And uh, it's interesting. There's a parallel between this and the Brexit that we had in the UK, where UK farmers felt a, a move away from the EU would also free up, um, you know, them and have less red tape, mm-hmm. which is... As an ex-farmer myself, although a few years ago, there, there is even then there were so much, so many rules and regulations, and I think that is that is the driver. And you could argue, and the, so the Clinton side are arguing these regulations are, are good uh, in relation to, to public public health um, and public safety. And the Trump view is they want to simplify stuff um, so that there is less, you know, less um, burdensome um, regs. 
Sure. And I'm sure it probably, you know, there's a, a middle way that probably makes the most sense. It's interesting that the the death tax was on uh, Trump's hit list. I think that is, a, a, you know, a real issue facing a lot of farmers across the country where you're, you know, essentially your biggest asset, um, your retirement plan is the is the land and the infrastructure on your farm. Um, but but, you know, how how to extract you know money to kind of pay the bills and buy groceries in retirement without selling the land or having the land be transitioned into non-agriculture use or being able to pass it on to the next generation those are really kind of complex and urgent issues because you know once farmland is is lost to development you know no one's i always say like no one's like plowing down strip malls and housing developments to put up farms no yeah, what, what is it, Mark Twain said? Is it land they don't make it anymore? It, it's, it, it's a finite resource. Um, on the Clinton side, she did say that, 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 you know, were she to form an administration, that they're really going to try and find, find a way to pass on the farm, basically, without crippling taxes. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think their idea is to maybe offer more help with estate planning mm-hmm. um, to, to make farmers um, able to... Uh, find ways to um, ensure that their, their children and farms can be passed down the line to people. So I think that may be something that, that they would be looking at is, is more help more help with estate planning, which of course is, is pretty basic to all this. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, then two thinking um, kind of again in that like in the context of transition, looking at issues specific to uh, women in agriculture, and I think they're the U.S. is uh, well. I mean, <laughs> I feel like just the sheer aspect of um, measuring women in farming um, positions is like relatively a relatively kind of new concept uh, for a U.S. egg census, and and acknowledging these issues is still um, a really um, new kind of like topic of discussion and thinking about, even though obviously. Um, women have been playing a really strong role in farms and farm businesses um, forever, frankly. Yeah, and, and, and as I say, it's interesting that, well, not interesting, it, it makes a whole lot of sense that, that, that Hillary Clinton's um, sort of latched onto this. And, and she mentioned, that we, she talked about women in farming globally, because uh, in, in globally, um, female farmers are 50% of agricultural labor. If you look across the across globally, and and two thirds, I think there's something like 600 million livestock farmers, and two thirds of them are, are women globally. Wow! So so that you know the, these are numbers which um, you, you know Kathleen Merrigan uh, came up with, and and it did in the room. I mean the room was it was packed packed with uh, you know ag media because it's the first opportunity really for both sides to to lay out any 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 idea of, of policy and, and I think it, it really did resonate with um, with the assembled uh, media and ag bodies and interestingly I just saw the other day that there is a, um, a list of five potential were were Hillary Clinton to become uh, to form an administration I think of the five uh, people put up for agriculture secretary um, I think two two, uh, two are women of which Kathleen Merrigan is one and, and, and I've forget the name of the other lady so that they're you know it, it, it's 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 a it's a good thing well yeah putting people in leadership positions to shape those policies i'm, I'm wondering if we could talk just uh, a little bit more on this topic and and clarify a little bit for folks when we're thinking about 
women's issues in agriculture, what are some of the things that would fall under that umbrella? Well, I mean, I, I, as she intimated, obviously, um, women will inherit, uh, you know, will will have the most land because um, often, you know, um, the husband dies first, so it leave, you know, it, it will uh, it will then pass to to the, to, to the wife to, to to take it forward. But I think, you know, it, it's the overall role that women can, you know, can, can bring that. Um, on farms, women do so much, and uh, you know they, they they're integral um, to, to to many farming operations. You know, but both in practical daily terms, and also you know, I think she pointed out that you know, doing the book work and uh, doing a lot of the books and the running the numbers. So um, I think you know, it's it's it will be very good for U.S. agriculture to to recognise this and. Um, I, there was no real talk of any definite um, initiatives or support, but I, I, I think I think the recognition of it al- alone um, w- as an issue. Well, yeah, that is definitely like a starting point. I mean, kind of acknowledging that there's a conversation to be had here, and I think you know some of the stuff comes a little bit more urgently into focus if you look at things from a global perspective, where. Um, you know, you're looking at, you know, women's kind of legal rights and kind of cultural implications with regards to uh, access to capital and, and cash and ownership and transfer. And, you know, I think there's many parts of the world where um, just really basic human rights are not something that women enjoy. And I think that obviously, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's, it's a big issue. And, and I think, you know, um, in many, many places in the world, you know, women aren't, uh, I think their role in agriculture maybe is, is some way down the line in relation to just, as you say, basic human rights and, um, you know, their their ability to have fairness within society. So, uh, um, but to recognize it here, um, what starts here, other, you know, other countries, other nations may look at this. And, yeah, people know, look at the U.S. for, for yeah. thought leadership on these issues. And so, well... One of the other issues that you talked about that I want to explain a little bit more for folks, because I feel like, um, especially if you're uh, like myself, an urban resident, the idea of access to broadband, so we're talking about internet access, um, that in many ways feels like a basic human right in the U.S. And, and on some levels, it's hard to imagine, um, you know, we get annoyed, uh, you know, by by having like a, a moment of slowness with uploads on our, our kind of mini computers. But um, I wonder if you can talk, if you know at all, about kind of the, the state of uh, broadband service in rural areas and why this is an issue that is going to make someone's top 10 list. Well, I, I think it... The idea behind, and from both, there was a, and I have to say in fairness, there was agreement from both sides on this. Um, the kids won't come home without Wi-Fi. So, you know, you, and it sounds such, it's a, well, in some ways a sad thing to say, but, but for a lot of kids, they are so, it's so integral now, their thumbs are glued to their, to their iPhones, that, you know, if you're, if you're trying to persuade your, your son or daughter to come home to the farm and there's no Wi-Fi, I, it, you know, well, it, that could be an issue. Um, and they, as I say, both sides recognize that. But, they, but more importantly, I think um, they, they're going to move on this in, in a big way because it's not just the iPhone and using your – it's about many high-tech – high technology on farms now is, is 
needs internet and Wi-Fi. You know, communication between the grain trailer to the, you know, to the elevator, between, uh, you know, recording systems for, for, for sort of fairly intensive commercial agriculture need Wi-Fi to be able to take uh, uh, the, you know, recorded data to a central point on the farm. And so I, I, I got the sense they were go, both going to work on it. I actually was speaking with a, with a, an under, a current undersecretary of agriculture not that long ago, who is, this is her, her field specific, is um, the area of, of rural broadband and improving it. And she was saying um, that they, are, they really are taking this seriously and, and they are looking to invest, to invest in it because they can see on, on several levels the importance of, you know, of communication within the rural community. Yeah, sure. And I think, you know, folks who, uh, you know, farming, you know, as we've talked about at the top of the show, using, you know, numbers that begin with a B, it is a big and increasingly uh, kind of sophisticated, high-tech, analytic-driven business. And I, I think government involvement with regards to broadband access is a thing that really makes sense because obviously in these rural areas, if I'm um, looking at, you know, sending out, uh, cables and building infrastructure for that. There's not a customer base there that's going to help me recoup my investment, um, and 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 yet, like deciding that access to that is something that is integral to like success of those regions. Um, it, you know, it makes a lot of sense. It's I think one of those interesting spaces around where you need a federal policy to to make sure that like folks have access um, where we're just kind of the kind of letting Definitely. letting businesses kind of like make those decisions like it, it makes sense like you know in a town of 300 is not going to is not going to you know pay the bills essentially to build out that infrastructure but well no as you say but i you know i i think that they are you know uh, under the obama administration they have been working on it but i i given the the, the sort of uh, the place in the list <laughs> as it were um, I, I think, and I think for both sides, also for you know, for the for a Trump administration, it would be the it would be the same, it would be the same that they are going to really look at this because, it, as I say, it is so integral now nowadays. It, it's uh, things change so rapidly, and and the young expect it. It, it. it isn't something that they think they should have that they expect it, and without that, you, you're going to have problems um, in, within the rural community of keeping these kids back. Yeah, which is yeah, which which you need to do. You can't run a yeah. like you can't run a farm without someone you know without a farmer essentially. No, well, indeed, farmers uh, <laughs> are very very valuable commodity. Um, John, we are going to just uh, take a quick commercial break to hear uh, from our awesome sponsors, Skate Maker, and uh, we will continue this discussion in just a moment. So, folks, hang tight. You, of course, are listening to the Farm Report on the Heritage Radio Network. And this one is called Snow Crash by Rectech. We'll be right back. Visit a farm. Log on to EscapeMaker.com for more ideas on local weekend getaways and day trips to orchards, farms, wineries, breweries, and more. 
Or come by Escape Maker's Blue Tent in Grow NYC's Green Markets and pick up a guide to local agritourism escapes to the Green Market's own farmers and producers. Have you listened to On the Road with Beer Sessions Radio? Escape Maker has teamed up with Heritage Radio to design a vacation package that provides a first-hand experience of the local flavors from some of New York's best craft beverage producers. Listen in and book your trip at escapemaker.com slash heritageradio. No car? No problem. Escape Maker features plenty of ideas for car-free getaways, including discounts via Amtrak. Get out of the city and explore, while also supporting your local farmers. Log on to escapemaker.com now to get inspired and make your escape through the net. Oh man, I love that tune. Uh, David, who was that again? That was uh, Rectech. Rectech. Awesome. Uh, well, we are back. You, of course, are listening to The Farm Report. I am your host, Aaron Fairbanks. We are on the line with John Wilkes, and we are getting the download on um, our next potential president's uh, positions as they relate to food production and agriculture in the U.S. and abroad. So one of the topics that fell on both sides of the aisle, of course, was immigration. It's been a big conversation in this campaign. And I, you know, there are many spaces where these candidates are um, very different in opinion. And I think this is a big one. And maybe, John, you can lay out for us a little bit, um, you know, what the difference uh, of opinion is here and what a... uh, immigration policy as it relates to agriculture might look like under Trump versus Clinton? Yeah, well, I'm, as, as, uh, as I intimated, um, the, um, uh, Sam Clovis pointed out that one in four um, uh, agricultural workers here are illegal. And um, he highlighted the need to, um, that we do, you know, that agri- immigration is necessary to be able to have these uh, Workers come in and do the job and then basically go home. And I think what was interesting from the Clinton perspective, too, that they, they both agreed on this. And uh, also, so uh, with Hillary Clinton looking to uh, reform maybe um, in, in, in her first 100 days, the, um, the, the sort of process to, 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 allow, you know, to allow this to occur, I, I, I think is really interesting. Um, it, it, it's a, this, this idea of immigration and, and people working, yeah, I, I liken it back to the UK too. I mean, with, you know, we, we need, uh, there's a lot of people come in and do a job and, and then they leave. And, and I think it needs, um, you know, come in on a fixed contract, you do the job and, and then you maybe leave. And I think both sides realize that, that that needs to be worked out and that they need to put legislation in place that people can come and work successfully and, and be employed and be looked after and do a good job. And then, and then you know, obviously they then return to, to their, their countries. Yeah. And I, well, I think the important thing that, you know, really resonates with me personally is thinking about uh, the, the safety and the treatment and uh, of, you know, farm workers. I think, you know, we, we really need to make sure that the people who are picking and producing our food, are able to um, have adequate housing, are able to be paid fairly for their work, are, um, you know, have access to medical care, have um, access to, you know, basic health services, and are able to kind of speak freely um, and and get rep- reconciled if there's like something going on with their employer. And I think, 
you know, when you're working um, in your status as undocumented, you don't have a lot of resources to advocate for yourself. And that is a, a scary position. I know, um, you know, on a very personal note, when I was working in, in upstate New York, um, definitely spent time with many um, folks who were here and and working very hard on a, in a series of dairy farms across Washington County um, where, you know, they, 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 there was like no, there was like no infrastructure in a protective way. And, and at the same time, you know, I wouldn't turn around and point to any of the, the farmers that I knew and say like they were taking advantage of that system. But I think, you know, employers, what, what gets measured gets, gets done. And employers, I think need that structure and workers need that protection. And it's, you know, it's scary to think about the opportunities for folks to kind of take advantage and for that that to end up, you know, kind of on our conscience as a country is a, is a pretty dire, you know, and it's unfortunate a, yeah, thing. It's a sad indictment, as they say. No, I, and I say particularly from, uh, the, you know, the Clinton side, they, they were, you know, workers' rights and um, protection of workers' rights is, is linked to, to, this, to this issue. Um, I mean, across the livestock sector, I know that the, um, there were issues a while back in the spring um, with the seasonal workers that come in to help out on the western rangelands with the US, in the U.S. sheep industry. And, um, you know, there were uh, – and these people are vital. The skill in, in, that, uh, in that sector, they, they, it's such a niche sector that these herders come in from Central and South America to work because they have the skills that sadly um, – Aren't aren't readily available, and and so you know I, I think there's an aspect too that in certain sectors that these uh, that people coming into work can can bring in um, you know skill sets which maybe aren't prevalent here, and and they need they need uh, they need looking after they need to be employed on decent contracts and have decent working conditions. Um, because it, it reflects, I think it, it's more how it reflects also on, on industries that, that if, uh, you know, workers are disgruntled and you haven't got a, a, a workforce that enjoys working for you, that's happy working for you, then, you know, the press is a, is, is a, is a very powerful thing these days and, uh, you know, it, it can get picked up and uh, reflect badly uh, on, on industries and, and farming is no, is no exception to that. Yeah, no, I think there's definitely uh, a tendency towards salacious coverage uh, in this industry, in this like th- this part of of the conversation in particular. And it's a complex thing because you know I think especially if you're looking at you know uh, vegetable production, for example, um, at like smaller and medium scale farms, you know you are as a, a producer, you have your entire kind of years. Uh, income is dependent on you know these kind of critical control points where things are ready to get picked and and sorted and washed and sent today um, and dealing with kind of the employment realities of uh, the long days that are needed when it's harvest season balancing that with uh, here in the northeast where you know in the winter there's totally different types of work to do but also the volume I think really transitions um, there's a real kind of pulsing nature to the needs of the space. And it, it falls a little outside of the way we think about uh, employment protections in, in more traditional spaces, I think. And, and that becomes quite complicated and I think really um, 
you know, shaping policy in that space requires a lot of thoughtful nuance and experience and having the right stakeholders at the table yeah, to make sure that like all sides issues and, and like very real needs are being represented because it's a, uh, it's a complicated and kind of complex thing. And it's different from different types of, you know, food production. Indeed. I mean, as you say, it, it, you know, the clues in the word seasonal worker, isn't it? I mean, it, it's a seasonal seasonal vacation. You have a crop together, be it strawberries or berries or, or, or whatever, or something to pick. And uh, you, you need you need that labor force for that, what, say, three-month, four-month period. So, and, and yeah, and, and also that the, the major organizations involved within the agriculture industry need to be consulted, but also that, that workers' rights are, are, are respected. I, you know, I feel very strongly about that, that, that um, you know, the, the rights of workers sh- should be respected and, and they should be employed, uh, you know, in a fair manner and receive a, you know, fair day's pay for a fair day's work. And, um, yeah, no, it, 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 it's, it's, a big, it's a big issue. And uh, hopefully um, there seemed a will on both sides to... Um, you know the the emphasis because immigration is a hot topic, but also to to make it fair, to put some element of fairness to it, perhaps. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that we've done, um, and thank you so much for this, really well today, is really point out all of the different areas and ways that people can be thinking about, be active in, be getting involved in agriculture and the food movement. I think often when we think about policy, uh, the conversation in the circles that I orbit. Uh, it really tends to be centered around thinking specifically about the farm bill, if we're thinking about things at a, a national level or thinking about things at an incredibly uh, kind of small scale local level. And I think here, you know, we've talked about energy reform. We've talked about integration. We talk about, um, you know, technology and access and substance abuse and corporate tax policies and death tax. And, um, you know, there's like so many ways that people can, uh, educate and advocate and get involved, but I think you know one of the things that feels pretty clear to me personally is that you know whatever your choices on uh, November eighth, the the policies put forth by both candidates have some overlap, but have some really significant um, differences. So it's it's an important decision that we'll all be making at the ballot box. Indeed, and and everybody's vote is important because uh, you know. The, the, the right to vote is a wonderful thing, and everybody should exercise it, in my opinion. So, John, for folks who want to kind of uh, dig deeper into some of the stuff we talked about um, and learn more on these issues, anywhere in particular that you would direct them for kind of further learning? Um, just if just a gen, on TPP, you've only got to put TPP agriculture into into Google, and you will have a wealth of uh, late, latest articles and uh, information about it. And um, obviously, on the USDA site, th- th- there is some of this stuff is available there. It, it, it can be a bit clunky, clunky and hard to navigate. But um, as I say, Google's a wonderful thing. And, and if you have an interest in, in any of the topics we've been talked about, I'm, I'm certain that you know uh, further information, further details, and organisations and bodies that, that uh, represent the industry, the National Pork Producers Council, the uh, National Cattlemen's Beef Association, just on the livestock side of things. They have very forthright views. If you go on their websites, you can, you know, you, you can hear how they feel about trade and that kind of thing. So um, you just, just generally um, see what's out there. Have a, have, have a play. Have a play on Google, and, and you'll, you'll find all sorts of wonderful stuff. Yeah, and hopefully, um, you know, we'll be hearing much more from uh, 
you know, both candidates on their, their positions. It's nice to see it working its way into yeah, it, the it, national dialogue. It was very pleasant, actually, because, you know, um, after all the, the vitriol and venom that's flying around at more senior levels within the party, it, it was uh, conducted in a very, in a very sort of um, uh, very nice way. Um, <laughs> well, that uh, is good to hear. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have to wear a flak jacket at all. I was safe. <laughs> got out alive. It was wonderful. Uh, but, uh, it was uh, there was it, it was it was very it was conducted in a very nice spirit I have to say and and um, which is in my opinion by much the best way to get a, to points over and to to provide information is to just talk about it openly and without any kind of antagonism and, and it uh, it was very telling I, I thought in, in this exchange between the two sides. Good, good. Well, John, thank you so much for helping us understand a little bit more um, about the the different candidates' positions. And it, it was such an interesting talk. I always love having you on. You give such a wow. unique and, and um, you know, thoughtful perspective. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I hope, hopefully I've managed to um, de-muddy the pond a bit, <laughs> the pond, but, or, or maybe made it more muddy. But it, there's a lot of stuff in there. But uh, it's a big topic. And as I say, everybody vote because it's, it's an important, it's, it's a vital thing to do. So everybody vote. Everybody vote. All right. Well, that is going to bring us to the end of our show today. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, if you like the program, if you believe in what we do, um, please consider becoming a member. You can do that by visiting our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. Click that beating heart and um, throw us a couple of bucks. I would love to hear a little bit more about uh, who you'd like to hear from on the Farm Report. Um, leave me a review on iTunes. Um, give me a shout out about what other topics or issues or people you'd like to see discussed here. And um, I'll be looking for that. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.